Hi, it's Mike here again. Just a quick warning, this episode contains a bit of strong language. On January the 28th, 1841, two ships, both flying the Union Jack, sailed into a large bay in Antarctica. In the name of Queen Victoria, they began mapping the coastline. They were the first humans ever to be there, and, being British, they promptly named everything after themselves and their mates. McMurdo Bay after one of the expedition lieutenants, Archibald McMurdo. Franklin Island for the explorer Sir John Franklin. Cape Crozier for second-in-command Francis Crozier. Cape Hallett for the ship's purser and, for Her Majesty, Victoria Land. The leader of the expedition was Captain James Clark Ross. And that's why there's now a Ross Sea, a Ross Island, a Ross Dependency and the Ross Ice Shelf. But of all the impressive sights that day, the most spectacular was a towering volcano on what Ross called the High Island. He wrote in his diary that it was observed emitting flame and smoke in great profusion. I named it Mount Erebus. Why? Because Ross's ship was the HMS Erebus, which took its name from the Greek god of darkness. Erebus is also the name of the dark region of the underworld, through which the souls of the dead pass on their way to Hades. Ross named High Island's other volcano after his expedition's second ship, HMS Terror. Four years later, in 1845, the Erebus and the Terror would be used for a much more famous polar exploration, this time on the other side of the world, Sir John Franklin's expedition to find the Northwest Passage between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. This is one of the most infamous sea voyages in modern history synonymous with misadventure and human suffering. The two ships became trapped in ice in northern Canada and sank, leaving 129 doomed men to fend for themselves. Later, search parties found remains of the crew's camps, including detailed diaries, and guessed it took about four years for all of them to starve or freeze to death. More than a century later, on the far side of the world, the darkness of Erebus struck again. On November the 28th, 1979, an Air New Zealand DC-10 crashed into the mountain of the same name in McMurdo Sound, killing all 257 people on board. You can dismiss the link between John Franklin and the Erebus disaster as just a coincidence. But by far, the two worst polar tragedies in history are connected by more than just a name. In both cases, people were hooked by the epic scale of the tragedy. Franklin's expedition transfixed the Victorian British public in a way James Clark Ross's didn't. People were obsessed with it. Now, this might have a bit to do with the weird affinity the Brits have for a noble failure, but mostly it's the unanswerable questions in the Franklin story. What happened to these guys? Search parties returned with stories of cannibalism, encounters with native Inuit people. There were songs written about Franklin's widow, paintings commissioned, statues erected. When the wrecks of the Erebus and Terror were found just a few years ago, it was global news. New Zealand's Erebus story has some of the same morbid fascination. The public was fed two completely different explanations about why the plane crashed. In one, it was all the pilot's fault and the other it was all the airline. So, which was it? There has never really been a definitive answer to that question, because coming in over the top was Justice Peter Mann's orchestrated litany of lies, sucking up all the oxygen. Did Air New Zealand conspire? Was there a cover-up? 
These questions have dominated the Erebus debate over the last 40 years. In this final episode, we're going to talk about why that is. Why has the conspiracy endured for so long, even after it was thrown out of court? And who really was to blame for this crash? I'm Katie Gossett. And I'm Michael Wright. From Stuff and RNZ, this is White Silence, a podcast about the Erebus disaster. And at one particular moment, I thought, no, it's gone, it's gone. It was totally unsatisfactory in respect to things that were left out or twisted. It does sadden me that many remain fixated by a desire to debate and attribute blame. Episode 6, White Silence. Every so often, David Nicholson goes for a blat around Hamilton, and he turns heads because his car is an example of classic 70s motoring. The brand new bright yellow Mini, you know, like goodbye pork pie. She's very proud of this little car. And uh, so my parents decided that they would keep it. She is Christine, David's sister. She was a school teacher at Wollstone Primary in Christchurch and she bought her first car in 1976, three years before she was killed in the Erebus crash. My father used to keep it and shine it every day and um, now I have it. <laughs> so it's uh, in 40 years it's done 72,000 kilometres. So it's almost brand new as it was. Something that she was proud to have purchased iconic little thing and my parents just kept it in memory of her. When you get into it, do you think of Christine? Is it a, a means for you just to have a little communion with the memory of her? Oh, I think more. it's more that I know where it's come from and therefore it's um, kept and treated with respect and looked after well. I mean, your memories of your brothers and sisters fade over time. It's been a long time. And it's one thing to keep and enjoy a memento like a car, but the debate over the crash, what happened, who was to blame, has cast an even longer shadow over the tragedy for people like David and his parents. My parents were very private, so they never really spoke about it. So I suppose that grief followed them for many years. It's quite an amazing thing, isn't it? Whenever you feel well with somebody at an airport, airports are very happy places, aren't they? And you're seeing people off and they're going to have a good time. And your expectation is they will return. And when they don't, I think my parents were left in limbo, really, um, because there is no finality. Paul Dykesel had two brothers, Doug and John, on the plane, and his brother-in-law, Stephen Hughes. Paul was supposed to be there too. He was the Antarctic nut in the family, and the trip was his idea. But he blew his knee out playing football and couldn't go. I suppose the thing that affected me more than anything was, you know, the why. Why has this happened? Why them? Why not me? Why not me? You don't expect that they're going to die. You know, we never got any help. 
and none was ever offered from what I can remember. But and what you do is you kind of, you do that terrible male thing, I suppose, is you just try and block it. Depressing as that is, it sounds about right for the 70s. Horrendous loss, no support in sight, and the men bury their feelings. Doug, John and Stephen were all married. They had six children between them, all aged under 10. They're adults now, terrific kids, Paul says. But no family can come through what the Dykesills have without some scars. It was incredibly traumatic, and Mum and Dad were, you know, just... It just destroyed them, you know. I mean, you, you, they, in truth, never got over it. It affected them for the rest of their, their lives. But, you know, of all the people I've talked to, Paul seemed the least angry about Erebus. Not bitter at all towards Air New Zealand and totally uninterested in the question of blame. There was a real sense from people that they had to find someone to blame, you know. And the public seemed to be much more enamoured by the idea of attempting to point blame. But I don't know that any of us ever felt that we wanted someone to blame. I think what everyone wanted was answers. And that was done badly. I can remember always feeling unbelievably sorry for the Collins family. You know, people weren't thinking of blaming in New Zealand, they were thinking about blaming the people on board. The Collins family has lived with that reality since that very first night, November the 28th, 1979. Jim Collins was the captain of the plane, and the plane had crashed. Jim's wife, Maria, she assumed the worst. When I first heard, I thought, what will the world think of us? I mean, if you hear bad news and you know Jim's in charge, I thought, what could he have been doing? How could he have made a mistake? A few months ago, I went for dinner at Maria Collins's house. Three of her four daughters were there, Catherine, Pip and Adrian. They talked about losing a father, losing a husband. He just went to work one day and never came home. Catherine, the eldest, sat her school cert science exam the day after the crash. Her dad always helped her with science. He wouldn't have wanted her to just give up. And how they got on with life. But WH wouldn't stop the clocks, you know. um, You can't stop the clocks. That's Catherine and me talking over her. You've got to just go, right, Okay, everything's really changed. You know, the world's completely changed on its axis. How are we going to do it? You can, can, as Mum said, you can go and, you know, you could say, poor me, I can't cope, and go into a loony bin, basically, you know, give up. All of the Collinses seem determined not to do this. They're angry about how Jim Collins was blamed, or at least they have been angry. Maria remembers seeing Maury Davis at an Air New Zealand function about a year after the crash. And he said, I think we can let bygones be bygones, Maria. And I said, never. But they're adamant this won't define them. It helps that a lot of people believe the Marne report. I have have no worries about what the public view is. That's Maria again, and me talking over her again. Because the majority, I'm absolutely certain, are pro-pilots. There will be a few naysayers, but I think the majority of Mr and Mrs Nobodies, like the rest of us here, all believe that Air New Zealand made the errors and not the pilots. And at the centre of it all for Maria is Peter Martin. And I admired him hugely, not just because he stuck up for me, but because he ruled against pilot error because he turned himself into a theoretical pilot. And instead of saying, oh, well, he drove the plane, so it must be his fault hitting a mountain, he took the trouble to go right round the world to find out how that aircraft was made, how navigation systems work, all the technical details, all those acronyms that you get. 
And the Nicholsons too. Peter Mann was an honourable figure. David Nicholson says his parents were pretty pleased when he was appointed to oversee the commission. He was someone they knew from church and his son went to the same school as David. So they thought he was going to get to the bottom of things. They regarded him very highly as a person of integrity and indeed posters putting out his report. They would visit him in his home in Rickerton, seeking to understand, but also I would say they felt he was heroic in making his stand ostensibly against the system and trying to find the root cause to find some reason for what had happened. When we left Peter Mann at the end of the last episode, he was down and out in Christchurch with a dodgy heart and no job. But he was writing a book about his Erebus experience and he was getting one last day in court at the Privy Council in London. He was going to challenge the Court of Appeal ruling that tossed out his orchestrated litany of lies. Well, really, other people were going to do the challenging for him because Mann was too sick to travel. In fact, he and Margarita moved back to Auckland to be closer to the right doctors. And it was Margarita who, in the winter of 1983, told her husband she was off to the UK to watch the Privy Council hearing. And he was astounded. I said, look, I am sick of people telling me what happens and giving their version. This time, I'm going to be there and know for myself. I went and I sat there every day. And at one particular moment, I thought, no, it's gone. It's gone. I don't know quite what to make of the Privy Council decision. It's just weird. On the one hand, as you will have guessed, it backs up the Court of Appeal. Mann was wrong to call Air New Zealand a bunch of liars. But it also goes to great lengths to pat him on the back. It says that he, quote, convincingly clears the pilots, Jim Collins and Greg Casson, of wrongdoing. And the Privy Council lordships were, quote, very reluctant to rule against him. They even said Mann was right that some Air New Zealand witnesses gave false evidence about the altitude rules. But then they tied themselves in knots trying to explain why this was actually OK. It's like they were trying to have it both ways, walking a fine line between Chippendale, Marne and the Court of Appeal to somehow please everybody. At the end of their decision, the five men in wigs issued a plea from their bench in Westminster. I can't quite decide if this is good advice or just really patronising. The time has now come for all parties to let bygones be bygones, so far as the aftermath of the Erebus disaster is concerned. There were what in retrospect can be recognised as having been faults or mistakes at the inquiry, which appear to their lordships for the most part to have been manifestations of human fallibility that are easy to understand and to excuse. The time has surely come by now for them to be allowed to be forgotten. All of that was academic though. Man had lost. The orchestrated litany of lies was no more. Neither was the $150,000 in costs he had ordered Air New Zealand to cough up for basically wasting his time. Peter Mann was resigned to his fate. He kept himself busy writing and chairing a few committees. He was lecturing part-time at Auckland University and doing some public speaking. One day, his mouth started to hurt. And it was found that he had a tumour in the sinus which had come down to the gum. Because of Mann's heart condition, doctors couldn't operate. He endured painful radiotherapy treatment on his mouth instead. 
the tumour abated, but between that and his heart failure, Man's time was nearly up. Remember that story we told a couple of episodes ago about Peter Mann's father? He ran a general store during the Depression. He wouldn't do some dodgy bookkeeping trick to fudge the numbers, and he lost his job. Well, one day about this time, when Mann was sick and back in Auckland, a couple of his sisters came to visit. And as they were walking away, the one sister said, it seems like history repeating itself. His father stood by what he thought was right, and Peter stood with speaking, what did they call it? Truth to power. Truth to power. Peter Mann died on August the 11th, 1986. He was 62 years old. Margarita Mann has no doubt Erebus shortened her husband's life. If he hadn't taken the job, he might have made it on to the Court of Appeal, then retired and gone to Italy to write. He probably would have been knighted. He was overlooked year after year, despite dozens of other judges, lawyers and supporters petitioning for him to become Sir Peter. I feel that it interfered with the whole family in a way that should never have happened. Great sadnesses. Saddest of all for Margarita is the thought of the two judges on the Court of Appeal who wrote that brutal judgment. I don't know whether it's anger, regret, tremendous regret. It's wrong not to forgive people, but I could never, ever forgive Woodhouse and McMullen. They caused this to happen in our lives. But out of everything that happened to Peter Mann, Margarita says the thing that hurt him most was losing one friendship. You might remember the name Lloyd Brown from the episode about the Royal Commission. Brown was the lead counsel for Air New Zealand and one of Peter Mann's closest friends. Lunches were their thing, and racing. They both loved the horses. After the commission was done, Mann wrote Brown a note. Time for another lunch. And the response was, you know, that he didn't think it was appropriate under the circumstances. Something like that. And Peter thought, what? This is not connected with the law. This is, you know, personal. And he was really, really hurt. He was really hurt. After Mann died, Lloyd Brown wrote Margarita a letter. The two men hadn't spoken in years. Here's Margarita reading from it. Dear Margarita, for me, the saddest thing arising from Erebus was the loss of Peter's friendship when the fates drove us onto opposing paths. Now I'm even more saddened by the news of his death. Despite everything and in all sincerity, I send my deepest sympathy to you and the children. Yours, Lloyd Brown. Margarita wrote back thanking Brown for his condolences. When I looked in on him at quarter to 4am and realised that he had just gone to sleep forever, it was, at that moment, peaceful and pleasant for us both. Think kindly of Peter. Remember the interests shared in books, in racing, and especially the twinkle in his blue eyes. Kind regards to Pamela, 
as ever Margarita. Remember Peter Mann had two final cards to play before his death. One was the Privy Council, that was a failure. The other was his book, Verdict on Erebus. His account of the entire Royal Commission saga was published in 1984 and won Best Non-Fiction Book at the New Zealand Book Awards the year after. It's easy to see why. Mann was an eloquent writer and the book is a great read, so long as you accept it's his version of events. After Mann died, TVNZ made a mini-series of Verdict on Erebus. Greg McGee wrote the script, and it nearly destroyed him. There was just this overwhelming material that I had to try and get over the top of, and I found it very challenging, and half the time felt like I was drowning in it. And, and the process was one of, you know, distillation, because we knew that whatever we did, the legals were going to be really terrifying. McGee was so worried, he took a remarkable step. Normally, when a writer signs a contract for a script, they're the ones on the hook for defamation. For the Erebus job, McGee insisted on reversing that. If there was legal trouble, it would be TVNZ, not him, in the gun. For a relatively impoverished writer with a young family and a mortgage, you know, it was worrying times. There was one more thing. When Erebus the Aftermath went to air in October 1987, Greg McGee asked TVNZ for security outside his home in Auckland, just in case. The disaster was nearly eight years old, but New Zealand was a small place. The Collins family had had a break-in back in 1980. A photo of Captain Jim Collins was torn to pieces. It wasn't out of the question that someone might find out where the McGees lived too. That was all dreadfully difficult. And of course, one of the difficulties was that Maury Davis was saying things on the radio, accusing me of dancing on the coffins of the dead. Yep, that really happened. After the last episode aired, Maury Davis, the former chief executive of Air New Zealand, went on the radio and attacked Greg McGee for exploiting the victims and slandering the airline. I find the whole thing most unseemly was totally unsatisfactory in respect to things that were left out or twisted. You did not emerge, I think we can say with some veracity, Mr Davis, you did not emerge very sympathetically from the series, nor did the airline. No. Why do you think that was so? I can't make up my mind whether it's just bloody-mindedness on their part or they're incompetent, I think probably a bit of both. This was supposed to be a drama. As far as the New Zealand public is concerned, it seems to be to them the way it is presented the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and it is not that. If there's a counter to Peter Mann in the Erebus story, it's Maury Davis. Mann was the people's hero, which made Davis the villain. Neither of those things was necessarily true, but as satirist David McPhail said, you'll remember him from episode 5, the public just didn't like Davis. So when the orchestrated litany of lies was thrown out of court and no one thought any less of Mann, that rankled Maury Davis. I get pissed off when people laud the gentleman, he told a reporter on the 10th anniversary of the crash. In terms of that determination, he was incompetent. A few months after Peter Mann died in 1986, Davis gave an interview to Metro magazine. He'd spoken to the media off and on about Erebus over the years, crowing when Air New Zealand won its appeals, complaining when Mann got a sympathetic showing on TV but he'd never gotten anything like the opportunities Peter Mann did to defend himself. In his first big interview in years, he was kind of an enigma. On the one hand, Kiwi bloke, no feelings. There was a rumour he'd cried after announcing the plane wreckage had been found. That was all bullshit, he said. You don't do that sort of thing, or at least I don't. 
but underneath the bluster, there was something going on. Davis also said that after he retired in 1981, there was a, quote, general atmosphere of massive depression at home. The whole Davis family withdrew into themselves for years. His daughter Angelina pulled out of a law degree when the Mann Report came up in lectures. His wife Myra, a tower of strength, Davis told Metro, collapsed in tears when the family was on holiday in Europe and she got a letter saying the family cat had died. Every year, he said, on the anniversary of the crash, the hate mail would arrive. Some of it was so bad, he passed it to the police. One recurring letter came from someone who took the time to write a mock greeting card from the 257 dead, inviting Davis to join them. It was about this time that the Erebus saga took one final weird turn. I'd read about it in the media. This is Stuart McFarlane, 90 years old, former law lecturer at Auckland University. I'd read the Mann report and then I um, read the Court of Appeal decision and I found that what they said really was misleading. It wasn't the true facts. So I smelt a rat. It's not an exaggeration to say that Stuart McFarlane probably knows more about the Erebus disaster than anyone else alive. He studied it for years, and he wrote the biggest, heaviest book on the subject. It's also important to mention that in the book, McFarlane is 100% behind Peter Mann in the orchestrated litany of lies. If what the Air New Zealand witnesses said was true, it meant that in regard to the flight path, Air New Zealand would have made a total of 54 mistakes. And that, to me, was simply not believable. So McFarlane kept reading, and reading, and reading. His wife Alison was there while he talked. For eight years, he never came home to dinner. He worked every weekend. I'd wake up in the morning, he'd be sitting reading transcripts. When I went to sleep at night, he'd be reading transcripts. I'm quite sure certain people thought that Stu just didn't exist. McFarlane finished his book, The Erebus Papers, in 1991. It's a mix of source material and his own comments. It's 700 pages long and weighs a tonne. McFarlane thought it was too hot for any major publisher to handle, so he did it himself, at a little company he ran. Here's Alison McFarlane again. When it came out, Stu said to me, if the police come and take me away, get in touch with Tim McBride or Bill Hodge. Law school colleagues. Because you couldn't be sure that there was nothing that they could get him on. Now that isn't the actual weird part. That came while McFarlane was researching his book. In the mid-80s, a war of words erupted in an aviation magazine called Wings. McFarlane was on the periphery of this. He wrote a big two-part article. But the real action was on the letters page, where a handful of Erebus experts got themselves embroiled in a barney over the crash. Half blamed the pilots, half blamed the airline. Round and round they went, going over the same information, same old arguments, until the edition of June 1986, when a British Airways pilot named Derek Ellis, who blamed the pilots for the crash, dropped a bombshell. He wrote an article saying he'd been talking to Captain Les Simpson, the Air New Zealand pilot who first noticed something odd about the Antarctic flight path and told his bosses. That set in motion that fateful change to the flight path. 
Alice said Simpson had told him the pilots' union had doctored witnesses' statements at the Royal Commission, that they were rewritten in a way that suited the union, i.e. they made it look like the crash was Air New Zealand's fault, not the pilots. Derek Ellis said he had more hearsay evidence that Arthur Cooper, that's the black box transcriber and pilots' union rep, that Arthur Cooper had said the union had been out to discredit Air New Zealand management at the commission. This was potentially a massive deal, a key Erebus witness casting serious doubts on some of the evidence. I talked to Les Simpson on the phone earlier this year. When I told him what I was calling about, he sort of half laughed and half sighed and said, again, he didn't want to talk. A lot of people I called for this podcast didn't want to talk, especially on the Air New Zealand side. I can't say I blame them. These guys are in their 80s or 90s now. I don't think they're trying to avoid hard questions or anything. They're just done talking about Erebus. Like, why are you calling me again? What else is there left to say? I asked Arthur Cooper about all of this, and he vehemently denied that he'd done anything wrong, that he'd said the union was out to get Air New Zealand, or that Simpson's or anyone else's statements were tampered with. And that makes this subplot just another he said, she said, in a story that already has far too many of them. The letter-writing war ran for about two years. It didn't end with a truce or even an agreeing to disagree. There were just two sides, each certain that they were right and the other was wrong. 37 years after he first got involved in Erebus, Stuart McFarlane still maintains an interest, still writes the odd letter to the editor. And he has never wavered from his belief that Jim Collins did nothing wrong. Here they are in Lewis Bay, and the whoop whoop altitude alarm goes off and they can see everything. Most pilots would have simply ploughed ahead. But cards go round power. He pulls up. He is ultra, ultra cautious. Having spent months looking into the Erebus story, I think there are two big reasons why it's so toxic. One of them is what we were just talking about. This false dichotomy of blame. Was it the pilot's fault or the airline's? Are you Team Chippendale or Team Marm? Erebus is a complicated tragedy, and it's just way too simplistic to frame it as one or the other, like one side is guilty and the other is innocent. But when you have two completely contradictory reports, one after the other, and stakes this high, that kind of all-or-nothing mentality is bound to take hold. The second reason is something we've already talked about a lot, the orchestrated litany of lies. That one line from Mann's report has a lot to answer for. It drove all of Air New Zealand's legal challenges and was such a good soundbite that everybody kind of forgot about what caused the crash. It made Erebus all about lies and cover-ups, instead of just being about a plane flying into a mountain. And here's the really frustrating part. There was a middle ground that nobody took. Remember that story from the last episode about Jim Anderton, when he went to Air New Zealand's offices and demanded they accept all the blame for the crash? Well, buried at the bottom of a newspaper article about that, I found a throwaway line from the Air New Zealand chairman, Bob Owens. 
Mr Owens said he considered three-fifths of the blame for the crash rested with the airline and two-fifths with the pilots. That's the chairman of Air New Zealand's board of directors saying he thought the blame for the crash was split and Air New Zealand was in fact slightly more culpable than the pilots. Then there's the Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon. Remember, he was a pretty shameless defender of Air New Zealand and he had a big spat with Peter Mann in the media. I mean, a lot of talk of Mr Justice Mann's courage. Well, let him display his courage. Well, after all the hearings were over, Muldoon confided something pretty surprising about Erebus. Here's Gerald Hensley, who ran the Prime Minister's department back then. I said to him that I thought the blame was 60% the pilot and 40% Air New Zealand. And Muldoon said, no, I think it was the other way around. I think it was um, 40% the pilot and 60% blame for Air New Zealand, which was interesting. So, at different times, the chairman of the Air New Zealand board and the Prime Minister both said they thought the airline was more wrong than right. If Mann hadn't gone that extra step of claiming there was a cover-up, even if he hadn't found such a catchy way of describing that cover-up, if no one had ever heard the four words, orchestrated litany of lies, it's not hard to imagine Air New Zealand getting the Mann report and saying something like, you know what, this isn't great. We think the pilot should take some of the blame here, but we'll leave it. Of course, that didn't happen. Once Mann accused Air New Zealand of lying, the chances of a mere culpa were basically nil. And things have pretty much stayed that way since. As far as I can tell, Air New Zealand has never apologised for the mistakes it made. Things like the navigation errors, the not briefing the pilots about whiteout, the total lack of clarity about the rules around minimum safe altitudes. And honestly, I think it should. Not because the crash is all its fault, far from it, but because those mistakes meant Jim Collins and Greg Casson were grossly misled when they flew into McMurdo Sound. There's no question these things contributed to the crash. The closest Air New Zealand came to an apology was through then-Chief Executive Rob Fife in 2009. Air New Zealand inevitably made mistakes and undoubtedly let down people directly affected by the tragedy. The mistakes Fife was referring to were for the way the airline treated the families of the victims. Nothing about what actually caused the crash. But it does sadden me that many remain fixated by a desire to debate and attribute blame. In my mind, this serves us no purpose 30 years on. Many lessons have been learnt. Yet there are some who continue to aggravate the suffering and the pain of those who lost loved ones in this tragedy while adding nothing new. David Nicholson says it would have been better for Air New Zealand to tell things as they were, rather than trying to control the message. It goes back to being encouraged to look out that big window of Christchurch Airport at the horizon, looking for the plane to come, knowing that it was never going to come. Where is the integrity in that process? Looking back, do you feel angry at that now? The only anger I, th- uh, I feel is that um, we were naive enough to think that that was a feasible thing to do. But if Air New Zealand had earned some goodwill with that half-hearted apology in 2009, it lost it a few years later when it released a new flight safety video. For the past decade, Air New Zealand has made a name for itself with its clever, light-hearted safety videos featuring local and international celebrities and showcasing New Zealand's history, culture and landscape. And the setting they chose for a 2018 safety video? Antarctica. 
Just like me, Air New Zealand is committed to creating a better tomorrow for our planet, which is why the airline supports scientific research projects right here in Antarctica. The video opens with Hollywood actor and environmentalist Adrian Grenier in a helicopter looking down at penguins on the ice, before neatly segueing into some safety announcements. With the fastened seatbelt sign lights up, return to your seat and buckle up. Seatbelts fit low and tight across your hip. There was at least six things on that video that personally triggered memories for me. Remember Stu Layton? He was one of the cops who recovered the bodies of the crash victims. He couldn't even open his eyes when he took a flight and the video came on. There was the shot of the helicopter, for example, flying over those beautiful ice cliffs. But that was the only way that we could get on and off the mountain. And so when I saw that, I was just instantly transformed back into the helicopter flying onto the crash site. And then you see the close-up of wearing the life jacket while well, we found them all over the crash site. And I thought, I don't need to deal with this when I'm just about to be locked in a metal tube. Leighton was just 22 years old when he went to Erebus. The mental strain of the experience slowly brewed inside him. There was no putting it back, and I just knew something was really very, very wrong. More than a decade after Erebus, Leighton was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I've coped with that ever since. I've been to hell and back through this. My family's been to hell and back through this. But that's what happens to your life and you just got to deal with it. I asked Air New Zealand if I could talk to the chief executive, Christopher Luxon, for this podcast. Not so much about that video, but the legacy of the crash. How it affects what Air New Zealand does today. They said no. Luxon was leaving his job. He'd resigned and he'll be gone by the time you hear this. So he couldn't talk. I really wish I'd been able to talk to someone because there are so many unresolved elements in the Erebus story. That's why, 39 years after the fact, something like a tone-deaf in-flight safety video still matters. And why, in talking to dozens of people connected to the Erebus disaster, there's one common thread. No one is happy. Not a single person we talk to. It didn't matter if they thought the pilots were at fault or Air New Zealand was or there was a conspiracy or there wasn't. Everyone was dissatisfied with how this played out. Erebus was an unprecedented tragedy for New Zealand. 257 people dead on the side of a mountain. And somehow, it became even worse. Blame levelled at men who couldn't defend themselves. Scandalous claims of lies and conspiracy that were just as scandalously dismissed. It really didn't have to be like this. Here's historian Jock Phillips. Any disaster, whether it's the Hawke's Bay earthquake or the Christchurch earthquakes, which lead to that level of death, people don't forget easily. And the difference with an earthquake, of course, is it's hard to find a human blame to it. But the Erebus thing was quite clearly a human error. That's unusual to have that number of deaths caused by human error. It's not surprising that there was very, very passionate feelings and that today people still do want justice to be recognised and a proper memorial to be erected. People don't want those things to be forgotten. I'd only been in the job of Prime Minister for just on a month, really, when a conversation began around the 40th anniversary of Erebus. In April 2019, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who wasn't born when Erebus happened, unveiled the design for a national memorial to remember the victims. And the fact that that anniversary was almost upon us, and yet there was still no national memorial and the first question I had was, what has taken us so long? 
Within weeks of the disaster, a cross was placed near the crash site on the slopes of Erebus. There are a few smaller Erebus memorials around Auckland as well. The main one, if you can call it that, is at Waikumete Cemetery in West Auckland. That's where the remains of victims who couldn't be identified are buried. Above the grave is a plaque to them and those victims whose bodies were never recovered. There are 44 names on it. But nowhere in New Zealand is there an official memorial to all 257 victims, which, when you think about it for a second, is crazy. Think of any of our worst tragedies, the Christchurch earthquake, Pike River, the sinking of the Wahine, the Tangiwai rail disaster. All of them have memorials. Of course they do. Erebus is New Zealand's deadliest disaster, and it's taken us 40 years to properly commemorate it. And I'm certainly pleased to see that there'll be something where the memory of my sister can endure. David Nicholson's never talked publicly about Erebus before. He's only done so now to honour Christine's memory. But he says one day he'd like to visit the ice. It would provide a finality and a place in your mind that you could establish as a resting place. I've heard so many wonderful stories about how nice it can be in that place. And it would be nice to know that there can be a place that is... um, beautiful and pleasant, as well as a place of great sadness. At 8.17am, November 28, 1979, an Air New Zealand DC-10 was cleared for takeoff from Auckland Airport. It was carrying 237 passengers and 20 crew. Most of them were Kiwis, but there were also Japanese, American, British, Canadian, Australian, French, Swiss. New Zealand's most famous citizen, Sir Edmund Hillary, was supposed to be on board as a flight commentator, but his friend Peter Mulgrew took his place. Hillary, who lost his first wife and a daughter in a plane crash in 1975, would later marry Mulgrew's widow, June, nowadays Lady June Hillary. Lorraine Burton was there. It was her 40th birthday that day, and the trip was a present to herself. The great mountaineer Bev Price was there. She and her mother had bought each other a ticket as a Christmas present. The Allen family were also there. Melian, he was the Antarctica fan in the family, and his daughter Jane. His wife Marjorie wasn't that interested, but decided to go at the last minute. Milkman Ian O'Connor was there with his brother-in-law, Ronnie Brayhout. That day marked 20 years since Ian had married Ronnie's sister, Shirley. The plane left Auckland and climbed to 33,000 feet, airspeed about 550 knots. Breakfast with champagne was served pretty much straight away. Lunch was to have been chicken suvorov, steak or prawns and scallops. By the way, that peach Erebus that they had for dessert, that was a mixture of peaches, cream and meringue, sort of a mini peach pavlova. The flight crew would have got their first glimpse of the continent sometime after midday, in the area around Cape Adair. Soon after, when the plane reached Cape Hallett, it made a slight turn to the right. Cape Hallett was the second-to-last waypoint on the trip south. It was only from here that flight TE901 diverged from the path that six previous flights had taken. About halfway between Hallett and McMurdo, Jim Collins started to take the plane down. 18,000 feet, airspeed 320 knots. By now, passengers could see something, and they started to move around a bit. They reached for their cameras, Kodak Instamatics and Polaroids. 
Air New Zealand deliberately underbooked its Antarctic flights so people had room to move. But still, there was a bit of jockeying for position. You didn't want a camera roll full of the backsides of the people who could see out the windows. The plane continued south to McMurdo Sound. About 1.30, Jim Collins spotted a break in the cloud and decided to drop down through it. He did two big loops to keep clear of the cloud as he did. He got down to about 6,000 feet, airspeed still about 300 knots. The plane flew over Beaufort Island. We haven't mentioned Beaufort Island before. It's another big what-if in the Erebus story. If the plane was on the McMurdo sound path that Jim Collins thought it was, he should have seen Beaufort Island on his left. But it passed on the right, and none of the crew recognised it. There was scattered cloud around, but passengers' photos showed Beaufort Island was clearly visible. And because the plane did those loops, there were several chances to see it. Peter Mann had a theory that flight commentator Peter Mulgrew, who would have been most likely to spot something was wrong, was walking from the cabin to the cockpit as the plane turned to the south for the final time. This was when it probably had the best view of Beaufort Island. If Mulgrew had been in the cockpit a couple of minutes earlier, he might have seen it and realised the plane wasn't where they thought it was. 1.45pm. The plane was heading south again. Collins kept ascending, heading for 2,000 feet. Airspeed, 300 knots. The commentator got on the PA to talk to the passengers. Peter Mulgrew speaking again, folks. I still can't see very much at the moment. Keep you informed as soon as I see something that gives me a clue as to where we are. All the passengers could make out were coastlines, just discernible between the white sea ice below and white cloud above. But they took photos anyway. They were excited now, starting to get their money's worth. Had the clouds parted at that moment, again, the alarm might have been raised. Mulgrew might have been able to see that to their left was Cape Tennyson and to their right Cape Bird, that they were in fact entering Lewis Bay on the north side of Ross Island. 1.47pm. Collins gets down to 2,000 feet, then 1,500. He has to keep below the gathering cloud. Speed drops back to 260 knots. For a couple of seconds, no one speaks. Then Jim Collins says, Actually, those conditions don't look very good at all, do they? Collins decides to climb. He and Catton spend crucial seconds debating which way. Collins decides left. Ten seconds later, that futile alarm rings out in the cockpit. Whoop, whoop, pull up. In the final second... Jim Collins calls for full power. The final photograph taken by a passenger on board TE901 was literally at the moment of impact, 1.49pm New Zealand time. Most of the photos taken in the minutes before are white, but this one is dark. There isn't much to see, just some liquid, probably jet fuel, splattered across a window. If you ask any New Zealander over about 50, they can tell you where they were when they found out about this moment. Younger listeners, if you weren't alive, ask your parents. Trust me, they'll know. So many times working on this podcast, we've heard the refrain, if you didn't know someone on the plane, you knew someone who did. One of our producers on this podcast, Adam Dudding, turned up to his Auckland primary school on the Thursday morning to learn that the school principal, Kathleen Horth, had been on board. The music you've heard at the start and end of each episode is by Wellington composer Rian Sheehan. 
It's called Stormcloud, and I first heard it before I started this project. I wrote to Rian and asked if we could use it. He said, sure. By the way, my second cousin died at Erebus. And David Nicholson's sister, Christine? She used to be my babysitter. The Nicholsons lived next door, and our families were close friends. She was a lot older than me, of course, a young teacher interested in Antarctica who loved music and art and drove a little yellow mini. I can only just remember Christine now, but one thing I do recall is passing food around at her funeral. There wasn't much else I could usefully do. I would have been seven years old. I didn't know anyone at the service other than the Nicholsons and my own family. And at the time, the magnitude of this event was way over my head. I just knew that a family friend had died unexpectedly. Everyone was really sad, and now the word Erebus was on the TV news every night. In adulthood, I've got to know the story a bit better. But now, after getting immersed in this podcast, what strikes me most is all those what-ifs. What if the flight plan had never been changed back to the route over Erebus? What if the pilots had never descended below 16,000 feet? What if the pilot had been to Antarctica before? Would it have made a difference, though? After all, Peter Mulgrew had been there as an observer. And what if Air New Zealand had apologised and acknowledged some responsibility much earlier? Would that have helped put our worst man-made disaster to rest sooner? The Erebus disaster could have been something that bound a small nation together. Instead, it became a story about blame, anger and recrimination. A quest for the truth that went badly off course. Right at the end of Peter Mann's Erebus report, after he was done blaming everything on Air New Zealand, he wrote a few paragraphs recalling his own trip to Antarctica as part of the inquiry. On the first anniversary of the crash, he stood on the slopes of Erebus, not far from where pieces of wreckage from the DC-10 still lay visible, and he watched the mountain disappear behind cloud. He thought about how much worse conditions had been a year earlier, and how Jim Collins and Greg Casson must have looked out through the cockpit window and seen only a featureless white expanse. For the ultimate key to the tragedy lay here, Mann wrote, in the white silence of Lewis Bay. White Silence is a co-production between Stuff and RNZ, written, produced and presented by Michael Wright and me, Katie Gossett. Our executive producers are Tim Watkin and Justin Gregory for RNZ, and for Stuff, Carol Hirschfeld, Keith Lynch, John Hartevelt, Carmela Heyman and Adam Dudding also helped produce this podcast. This episode was engineered by Alex Harmer and included audio from Na Taonga Sound and Vision and Archives New Zealand, with assistance from Chris Cree-Brown. You can subscribe to the full six-part series at Apple, Spotify, Radio Public, Podbean and other podcast providers. You can also go to the Stuff or RNZ homepages to find details on how to subscribe.